The Adler Planetarium presents The Aquarius Project, Chapter 5. Welcome to the bottom. Early one morning at the end of July 2019, a group of Chicago high school students piled into a van with some staff members from the Adler Planetarium and one podcast producer, traveled to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, and headed for the docks behind the Wisconsin Maritime Museum, right on the shore of Lake Michigan. The team is loading their gear onto a research boat, the RV Niske. A few students and staff are arranging wooden slats on deck to keep the magnetic sled from sticking to the metal floor like it did last time. Another student is walking toward the boat, grinning and carrying a giant, heavy-looking rock he found in the parking lot. From behind him, the boat's captain, Captain Greg, makes an announcement. We got it. We got it. Well, let's go. Home. Good day. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. If you've been in this with us for a while, you'll recognize the guy telling everyone to wrap it up as Chris Bresky. This morning, Chris and the team are in high spirits. The weather is perfect. The water is calm. But there's just a whiff of tension in the air. This project has been running for two years, and the team only has a few chances to pick up a space rock with their handmade sled. A lot could go wrong. Right now, Chris is laughing and joking around, checking in with the teens, floating from the deck to the dock and back again, his usual buoyant self. But by the end of the day, he's going to feel it. Yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't have mixed feelings. I have a mix of feelings. This stuff moves slow, and we only have a small window of being out here, and, and we're back in a couple weeks, but that time goes by so quickly, and I don't know, I am feeling the sense of urgency and also it kind of fleeting, and it is a little sad and frustrating <laughs> that science is so hard. Um, and, and that... The same thing that makes science exciting can also make it really difficult. That thing is uncertainty. A lot of people think science is about facts, that it's this collection of authoritative information. But if you ask anyone who actually does science, they'll tell you that's not true at all. What makes science special isn't the facts. It's how we found them looking, without knowing what might turn up. That's what Chris and his cohort of teen meteorite hunters are doing today. They're taking what they know about a meteor. Where it crashed, how big the pieces probably are, how deep the lake is. And then sailing, literally, into the unknown. Exploring uncharted waters can be exhilarating. Because no one knows what's down there. And also scary, because no one knows what's down there. Even the experts don't know much about the bottom of Lake Michigan. We know because we asked one. Uh, my name is Philip Willink, and I am a fish biologist, undersea explorer. We've mentioned Phil before. 
He used to work down the street from the Adler at Shedd Aquarium. And he was one of the first people Chris talked to after the meteor crashed. By the time Chris knocked on Phil's door, Phil and his coworkers were already talking about the meteor. We were joking around in the office. We should go look for this thing. But the reality was, you know, I'd already done a lot of work on Lake Michigan, and looking for a rock on the bottom of a giant lake that's full of rocks seemed crazy. Phil says the Great Lakes are full of mysteries. Most people barely even think about the lakes, let alone physically explore them. People are aware that Lake Michigan is out there, particularly in Chicago. They, everybody knows that Lake Michigan is out there. But their vision stops at the surface, at the waves. They never think about what's happening beneath the surface. And I spend a considerable amount of my time trying to convince people that it's fascinating and that there is a lot going on there. Phil's right. I've lived in Great Lakes states my entire life, and the lakes are just sort of there, like a freshwater ocean. But nobody really talks about it unless they live near a beach or know somebody whose uncle has a boat. There are a few detailed maps of shipwrecks and big edible fish populations floating around. But that's just a drop in the bucket. The other, probably 95% of the lakes, no one's actually gone down and looked at. You're listening to this, so you probably like space. Maybe you've dreamed of being the first person to walk on Mars or visit some far-flung galaxy. But right here on the planet Earth, probably somewhere not too far from where you live, there are places no one has ever been. You can change that anytime you want, just like the kids on this boat and their giant fake parking lot meteorite, which Captain Greg has allowed to be hauled aboard for luck, are doing right now. Chris and the teens have hoisted the final backpack across the threshold. Captain Greg and his two-person crew are ready. It's time to raise the anchor, untether our floating lab from the dock, and travel the 20 or so miles to the crash site. Our lab for the day, the RV Niske, belongs to the School of Freshwater Sciences at the University of Wisconsin. She weighs about 75 tons. She's 71 feet long. And she was built at uh, Hagen's Boatyards, New Orleans in 1953. That's Beth Fernandez, a member of the crew. She started her life as an army boat, and she would run supplies shipped ashore back and forth. The RV in RV Niske stands for Research Vessel. That tells you the Niske is a science boat now. And Niske means pure, clean water in the language of the Ho-Chunk people, who have deep roots in the area surrounding the Great Lakes. It's a perfect name for this vessel in this place. You can't say the name of the boat without also referring to the lake all around it. We've barely cleared the dock, and the Niske is already abuzz with activity, and tiny biting black flies. Half a dozen Adler teens and half as many staff, one scientist, three boat people, a couple of extra hands from the University of Wisconsin, and Aaron, our producer, and I, all have our work cut out for us. Below deck, in the kitchen, Chris is pointing out important locations to the teens. There are two bathrooms on the boat, 
And there are a few bunks in the next room in case anyone gets seasick. If you're feeling really woozy, um, uh, they have a lot of sometimes to like fly down. Um, but yeah. Everything in the kitchen is a reminder that we're just guests in Lake Michigan, and the calm, sparkling lake could rip the welcome mat out from under us at any time. The table and chairs are bolted to the floor, and every cabinet and drawer has a little sliding lock on it to keep its contents from flying all over the place in rough waters. So we got all the work to do when we're out there, and then it's really exciting. We can talk to the crew about the sensors that we have. Up the ladder, through the engine room, out the cabin door, and around the corner, Phil is pressing buttons on a chunky electronic box. So what I'm doing is I have a GPS unit, um, a handheld one. There's also one on the ship, but sometimes this one's a little easier because I can set it to whatever I want. Phil isn't the only one making last-minute adjustments on the way out to the crash site, which is also called the strewn field, because that's where the meteorites are strewn across the lake bottom. Back in the cabin, above the kitchen and the bunks, Chris, a few teens, and a graduate student and staffer from the School of Freshwater Sciences are up to their elbows in wires and tubes. I'm Jessie Grow. Jessie's from the School of Freshwater Sciences. We're just sort of throwing whatever we have at it. So we'll have um, dissolved oxygen on here. And then um, we've also got a sound here, which measures um, DO, temperature, depth, um, turbidity, and also chlorophyll, and pH, and conductivity. Lots of stuff going on in here. On the other side of the tiny cabin, probably two feet away, an Adler teen is sitting on a tall stool in front of an open laptop and a pile of electronic flotsam. My name is Mike Doherty. And I'm an intern for Far Horizons, working on the Aquarius Project. And I created this OBC, which is an onboard computer, for our sled to gather data with sensors. There was a version of this contraption on an earlier trip, but it didn't hold together very well. Right now I'm mounting it. I just hot glued over some of the joints because they they would kind of come apart on me. So... I've hot glued everything so that it stays together now that I have everything reading correctly. So now I'm just going to tape everything to the inside of the tube so that it stays in place when we strap it on the sled. And we'll probably just uh, wrap a bunch of duct tape around it to keep it on the sled, which works pretty well. Behind the cabin, next to the hydraulic arm that looms over the back of the boat... A few more teens are affixing a thin vinyl sleeve to one of the magnet wheels. Rocks can stick to the magnets right through the vinyl, but having the sleeve there will make it easier to pull them off. Soon, Chris Bresky appears, hugging a pristine white bedsheet to his face. Yes, a bedsheet, about 500 thread count. The very first time we came out, we were, we were spraying down the sled and we felt like we were losing so much material, small material, on the, the deck of the boat and washed overboard. So we have the sheet to catch every little tiny thing. Um, and it's luxuriously soft. It came in a, in a, in a bedding set. So there's a, a couple of pillowcases and a fitted sheet in the, in the, <laughs> in the galley somewhere. But this thing, it will be a... It's not your imagination. Chris is everywhere. He's running orientation below deck fetching supplies, answering questions, checking on Mike in the cabin, chatting with Phil up front, waving that sheet around by the hydraulic arm. And with every lap around the boat, that tension I mentioned, 
gets a little bit tighter. It's late morning, and we've been sailing toward the strewn field for about an hour. Our producer, Aaron, and I have been looking over people's shoulders and wedging ourselves into their conversations with a long, skinny microphone Aaron tells me is called a shotgun mic. Beth and Jeff, the other crew member, have taken down the chain link gates from the back of the boat and lowered the hydraulic arm into place. The sled is as ready as it's ever going to be. The Niske crew attach the sled to a cable that runs through a pulley on the hydraulic arm and back to a hand-cranked cable spooler at the back of the cabin. A second cable is plugged into a camera mounted on the sled and attached by zip ties to the first cable. Once everything is secure, they lower the sled into the water and let go. With any luck, the next time we see it, it'll be covered in meteorites. This is not the first Aquarius Project boat trip. The Niske isn't even the first boat Chris Bresky has talked his way onto. Way back in 2017, a Shed Aquarium volunteer graciously invited Chris, Yoshi, the sled designer, and Phil to test the sled prototype aboard his own personal boat, a tiny but mighty vessel called the Double Jameson, just off the coast of Chicago. Then in 2018, a crew at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration let Chris, Phil, an Adler engineer named Jesus, some Adler teens, and even me, a writer with zero scientific or nautical training, tag along on the RV Storm as they scoped out a shipwreck near Sheboygan, Wisconsin. The team tested equipment that day in preparation for their first trips to the strewn field on the Niske, which were scheduled for later that summer. Today, we're in a part of the strewn field where there are a lot of small, pebble-sized pieces of meteorite. That's what our sled was designed to pick up. If you're wondering why the team didn't build a device that could pick up a bigger piece, say, the size of a brick, it's because there are way more small pieces than big ones. So there's a better chance the magnets on our sled will pass directly over a small piece. We can't see any of the pieces from the surface, so we have to play the odds. It takes a while for the sled to reach the lake bottom. While the cable is unspooling, and the sled is slowly descending, the team huddles around a couple of computer monitors in the cabin to watch the live video feed from the camera. Yeah, as we've gone further south in the stream field, it's been deeper and deeper. So this is probably the deepest we've ever been. The Niske was built in the 1950s, but it's been retrofitted with a digital navigation system and other more recent technology, like these monitors. At first, there isn't much to see just a greenish haze as the camera gets farther from the light of the surface. About 85 meters down, everything changes. Whoa, hey! Oh, that's gross. It does look a little gross. Kind of sudsy. Sort of clumpy, dirty, bubbly. Flocculent is the word our scientists use to describe it. The sled is kicking up a lot of soft material, which is causing these clouds of debris to billow up around the sled when it digs in too hard. But when the sled hovers just over the bottom and the flocculence dies down, 
we can see the lake bottom stretching out in front of the sled. It's flat and earth-toned, and it's covered in these little white shells. While the sled zooms forward, the team starts recording every piece of data they can. How deep is the water? What time is it? How fast are we going? What are our coordinates? How high are the waves? Some of this information might help them, or some other team, collect meteorites on a future trip. But all of it is potentially useful. Like I said, less than 1% of the lake has been mapped in detail, so you were the first eyes to be able to see this. After the trip, they'll be able to look at their data as a group, slice it up in different ways, and maybe find patterns and connections they never would have thought to look for. Those little white shells all over the lake bottom are a good example of this, actually. If your attention was so narrowly focused on space rocks and sled gadgets that you didn't notice the shells, or didn't think to ask what kind of shells they were, you'd miss out on the pretty important fact that they're not supposed to be there. We're looking for alien rocks on the bottom of the lake, and we ended up finding alien species on the bottom of the lake. That's Phil again. He told us the shells belong to quagga mussels. Quagga mussels are a small clam, basically, about the size of your thumbnail. Uh, but they're not originally from the Great Lakes. They're originally from a place called the Black Sea, which is in Eurasia. And these are having a huge impact on the food webs of the Great Lakes, are continuing to do so. We think they may even be expanding their range, and so we don't even know the full extent that this invasive species has had. The team actually discovered the quagga mussel infestation on an earlier boat trip, when they found a bunch of those little white shells stuck to the magnets on the sled. Phil guessed that the mussels may have ingested some microscopic bits of metal in the water from shipwrecks or industrial pollution. But the magnetic mussels weren't the only Aquarius project discovery that surprised him. We thought that the bottom was going to be sort of this firm clay or mud or something like that. And it turned out to be several inches of this really soft material. And we don't know if that material was always there and was just never surveyed or if it's perhaps something new because of the quagga mussels. It's possible that the quagga mussels are trapping some of this soft sediment in between their shells. You know, what we don't know is how this all ties in together and how all of this will affect the meteorites. The more you know about a place or a thing, the easier it is to see how it interacts with the world around it. Phil was able to connect a surprise canopy of magnetic mollusks to global trade and shipping routes, pretty much instantaneously, because he spent years studying marine life. Those practical, tangible, physical connections, how these quagga mussels probably got here, why you can pick them up with a strong magnet, also reveal the power we have to affect the world around us. A boat sailing from one place to another can change an entire ecosystem. The first sled tow, that's T-O-W, like pole, is done. A little crowd forms at the back of the boat. The crank is cranked. One at a time, the zip ties are cut. Cables are coiled. Breaths are held. After a few long minutes, finally, the sled whooshes into view. There's a lot of stuff stuck to it. Dirt, rocks, quagga mussels, the occasional green thing, and more than enough sludge to clog any drain in your house. 
The team pulls it aboard and sets it down on top of that luxuriously soft bedsheet Chris showed us earlier. Someone grabs a water hose. Um, so yeah, so we're spraying off all the sediment, everything collected from the bottom of Lake Michigan uh, with our sled into the collection sheet so we can kind of twist it, we'll twist the sheet almost like a cheesecloth and squeeze out the excess water. Yeah, do you want a hand? That sediment goes into orange buckets, carefully labeled with the date and tow number. Standard brown-looking rocks also go in the buckets, and any rock that looks really different or interesting goes into a small plastic container, labeled with the date, tow number, and a much more exciting word, maybes. Basically anything that we have, we put into the bucket, and then we bring it back to the lab to analyze. It's kind of been our... M-O. No muscles go into any of these places. Well, okay, so our our first uh, our first outing, we did put muscles in, um, and it was pretty gross when we opened it up back in the lab. I think like a little bit later. So we're now we we'll deliberate a little bit more. If the muscle is clinging to a rock or something like that, which happens a lot. We, we now separate the two. We realize the mussels aren't, aren't a rarity. And uh, we brought, we specifically got samples of mussels today, so we don't need any more samples of mussels um, with our meteorite maybes. When the sled is good and stripped, the team and the crew get it ready for the second tow of the day. Cables, zip ties, hydraulic arm, the whole process will repeat in a slightly different part of the strewn field. The hours will roll on. The sun will move across. The, actually, the sun stays put. It's the planet under our feet that's moving, but you knew that. Earth spins fast. Too fast today to fit in a third toe like Chris wanted to. But the new buckets of rocks and sludge will be labeled. New maybes added to the maybe pile. And when it's all done, the bedsheet will be draped over the railing to dry. On the way back to shore, Aaron and I catch Chris at the front of the boat. The teens are all elsewhere, maybe in the cabin, maybe in the kitchen, maybe packing up their projects. Wherever they are, they're out of earshot. So we ask him for his unvarnished feelings about the day. Yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't have mixed feelings. I have a mix of feelings. This stuff moves slow, and we only have a small window of being out here, and, and we're back in a couple weeks, but that time goes by so quickly, and... I don't know, I am feeling the sense of urgency and also it kind of fleeting, and it is a little sad and frustrating <laughs> that science is so hard. Um, and It's starting and to that, hit, Chris, you know, that this big adventure might be over soon. So exhausting, he like, knows science is a process, not a result. In fact, he spent years of his life teaching high school students this exact lesson. But he also knows how close he is to getting the result he wants. After all this time, all the experimenting, all the setbacks, all the breakthroughs, all the boats, he just wants one little meteorite. And he might not get it. That is what I'm feeling right now. I want it to be further today. A part of me was like, it doesn't matter. You see the relationships being built. 
you see the teams working together, you see them doing real science and overcoming uh, struggle, and that's that is enough for me to sit down at the end of the day with a big smile on my face and very satisfied. Um, but man, I guess I'm getting greedy. Now it's like, oh shoot, now I want, now I want the real stuff. Now I want the science to be real. Yeah, that's real. This I honestly, like, is I, real I science. Like, this is how it works. One minute, it's all ooh and ah, and look how far we've come. And the next, you're looking over your shoulder and confessing your secret fears into a shotgun mic. When you sign up to explore the unexplored corners of our universe, you also sign up for moments like this one. That's the deal. Actually, it's a really good deal. No matter what happens when the team takes those big orange buckets back to the lab, no matter how their adventure ends, they're always going to be part of a much bigger one. They asked weird questions and tried to answer them, and that means they'll be part of the story of those questions and answers forever. They've already followed a fiery light in the sky to the flocculent depths of a freshwater sea. They've brushed elbows with the captains of the ships that accidentally caused an out-of-control quagamussel infestation and spoken the words of the people whose languages named this state, this lake, this city, this boat. That is what you get for your attention and your questions. You get to see for yourself how everything, everywhere is connected from the top of the world all the way down to the bottom. And once in a while, you also get a clear answer. Up or down, yes or no, meteorite or ordinary earth rock. You will get that answer and a whole lot more next time on the final episode of The Aquarius Project. The Aquarius Project is a production of the Adler Planetarium with music by Audio Network. It was written by me, Aubrey Henready, and produced by Aaron Cahoe. Our logo was designed by Orilla Fetro. Enormously, hugely special thanks to our crew at NOAA, Charlie Menza, Jen Krause, Travis Smith, and John Bright, the Niskay crew, Greg Stamulakis, Beth Fernandez, and Jeff Anderson, Marina Paradise from the Electaquini Institute at the University of Wisconsin, Phil Willink, Jacob Pinter from National Geographic, and, of course, Chris Bresky. Speaking of those last two people, if you need more Aquarius Project in your life while you're waiting for our final episode, we have great news. Our own Chris Bresky and friends were featured on the November 19th episode of National Geographic's Overheard podcast. Click the link in the show notes, Enjoy a few familiar voices and congratulate yourself for knowing all these people before they were famous. Follow the Adler Planetarium on Twitter and Instagram at Adler Planet or on Facebook at Adler Planetarium. Visit our website at adlerplanetarium.org. I'm vetoing everything in advance. Absolutely not. Whatever is happening at the end, just no. 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 We shall see.
Ugh. I hate that. Okay. 